Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. And today we hear about that quote from Jim Elliot. He is no fool. Elizabeth called us to live to a higher standard each day and not be satisfied with just a touch of religion instead of giving God our best. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by her life and message. We continue our extended series into Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth Elliot's time in Ecuador. More on the love story of Jim and Elizabeth today and about newlyweds. About, as I mentioned, that quote from Jim, uh, Valerie, they're daughter will have a quick comment on that. Nephew Peter DeVries will have some thoughts on Elizabeth's love for him and about waiting. That's later in the program. Hear about a, a married life that was rich, about harmony, about a word fulfiller, about papaya, fresh eggs, and smoked fish, but also about cockroaches so big that you could hear them. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you today about newlyweds. We've been telling the story of Jim Elliot from the book Shadow of the Almighty. And in his diary, December 1st, 1953, he wrote this. It's not raining at the moment, but the fresh-cut bamboo slats are chunked with fresh mud, and the other half of the tent, not yet floored, is slippery gum from an all-night rain on Sunday. We had to get this much of the floor in yesterday, and they are supposed to be bringing more bamboo today, so perhaps we will be fully floored this week. I am supposed to have had jaundice almost since the day we arrived, November 11, and am still a part-time bed patient. Betty is out cooking in the kitchen shack while I sit at the card table, decked with an aster-flowered tea cloth with a centerpiece of white candle and a graceful-leafed little forest flower set off beautifully in a tin can. Married life is rich, as I have always known life to be, but richer in its complexity. We have known nothing but harmony. The marriage, quote, adjustment, unquote, is something which, if it exists at all, I am going through effortlessly, unconsciously even. Such is the love we know. Well, Jim and I had waited a long time for each other, as you know if you've been listening to these programs. We had fallen in love in college, and five and a half years had elapsed between that time and when we finally were married in the capital city of Quito. After a honeymoon in Panama and Costa Rica, we got some Indians to come up the Puyo River to a little town called Puyo, which was at the end of the road that came down from Quito, and they transported us with our belongings in two wooden dugout canoes down the Puyo River to where it meets the Pastasa, a little place called Puyupungu. It was rather an exciting trip for me. I had never been in a dugout canoe on this kind of a river before. The river was quite deep and very winding, and there were some steep rock walls. I remember the excitement of feeling as though the canoe was rushing straight against a rock wall, and then the marvel of seeing the way those two men, one in the bow and one in the stern, could 
steer it away from the rock walls just at the crucial moment and take advantage of the speed of the current. It took us most of the day to get down the Puyo River, and before we reached the place where we were going to beach the canoes, there stood Atanasio, the man who had invited us to come and open a mission station. He and his two wives and about 15 children were standing on the bank, yelling and shouting and waving. We couldn't hear what they said for a long time, but as we finally pulled up, we could hear him saying, so you are a word fulfiller. Jim had promised that we would be there on such and such a day, and we were there. Everyone immediately participated in unloading the canoes. I had a tiny little iron stove in a wooden case that I had bought from Sears Roebuck and brought down to Ecuador from the States when I first went out. I remember that it cost me $17. It was worth its weight in gold. It had four lids and a tiny oven just big enough to make two loaves of bread. We had a steel trunk, which was really some kind of an ammunition case that we'd bought in a second-hand store. We had a little folding organ, a folding bed, and innumerable boxes and steel drums, and an enormous, heavy 16-foot tent, which was going to be our house until we would be able to get a house built. The Indians could not have been kinder and more generous in their welcome. They seemed to be thrilled to death to have missionaries there for the first time, and the children were excited about the fact that we were going to establish a school. That evening they gave us wood, water, fresh eggs, papaya, smoked fish, and plantains. We slept in a little shack which was just about to fall down. I remember the size of the cockroaches. They were so big that we could literally hear them walking around in the thatch and between the split bamboo walls. The shack was too low for either Jim or me to stand up straight, but we were very thankful for a roof over our heads. The next day, the Indians began pitching the tent. They'd never seen anything quite like that before, and they really were not very impressed with it as an adequate house, but it was good enough for us to begin with. Little did we realize how badly it was going to leak, but again, we were thankful. Then they started building a small kitchen shack where I could put my little wood stove, and we had a, I think it was a folding card table that we used for our dining room table. Then we hadn't been there more than just a few days, I think it was, when Jim began feeling terribly miserable and soon turned a beautiful shade of mustard color all over, and I realized that he had that missionary disease, hepatitis. Everybody seemed to get hepatitis at some time or other, but he was completely laid out for nearly six weeks. Things were a bit miserable for those six weeks because, of course, no work could proceed on the building of a house, and the first thing that was important to do was to build an airstrip. The Indians were cutting down trees, but they needed supervision in knowing the width of the strip and how, uh, how smooth it had to be. That was something that was new to them. And so things were delayed by about six weeks, and during those six weeks the tent began to leak more and more seriously. During the time that we were there in Puyupungu, Pete Fleming and Ed McCulley were back in the station where Jim had lived before, a place called Shandia. 
it had been decided that they would build a sort of mission base in Shandia and use that as a place from which they could move out to various areas of the Quechua tribe in the jungle. After we finally got the house built and an airstrip built, we were able to establish a school. We began to teach the Indians to read in their own language. We were really still studying it ourselves and reducing it to writing and doing some Bible translation. But it was our first experience in literal pioneer missionary work, being in a place where no missionary had ever been before. And the Indians were very excited and very responsive. So we had a good little school going. I think all of Atanasio's children were there, and there might have been four or five children belonging to other people, but his family was the nucleus. And Jim began Sunday services in a little building that we called the school building. It was also built of split bamboo with a thatched roof. And we managed to get across to the people that one day in seven belonged to God. And that was the time when we Christians met together to study his word and to pray and to worship. And they began to do this quite willingly, although none of them had as yet professed to be Christian believers. It was an unusual kind of a honeymoon that first year, living in the tent. I can remember nights when it was pouring rain and we spent most of the night moving that folding bed around, trying to find a dry spot. And Jim had gotten sick before he had a chance to put a floor in the tent, so we had a mud floor and the rain would pour sort of around the tent and then start running through the tent. So there were nights when the legs of the bed were sinking into the mud and we were spending our time trying to find a dry spot and just occasionally collapsing in a heap of laughter because this whole thing was so ridiculous. When I think of the first year of marriage of many of my friends, so different from what we had, they were preoccupied with their marital problems and their adjustments. And I think probably the reason Jim was able to say that he was not conscious of any adjustments was simply the fact that we hardly had time to think about anything except getting a place to live and getting an airstrip so that we could have the airplane come in and bring supplies to us. Then in June of that next year, 1954, we moved back to Shandia to help with the building of that base. We continued to keep in touch with the Indians in Puyupungu. We had left an Indian believer there from another area. He had gone in sort of as a missionary and a pastor and a teacher, and we kept in touch with him and supported that work while we were living in Shandia and Jim was helping to build a base. It was a thrill for him to be back with his friend Ed McCulley. They had gone to college together, and they began building this base. Jim's father came down from the States, and they began mixing cement and hiring Indians to clear the bush and to build a house for us. It was rigorous work, mixing cement by hand, setting up forms, hauling sand and rocks from down on the riverbed, which was 50 feet below the cliff where our house was to be built. On October the 8th, 1954, Jim wrote in his diary that it had been the happiest and busiest year of his life. I remember one friend of mine who told me she had cried more in her first year of marriage than ever in her whole life put together. And I guess that's a rather common experience, but that was certainly not mine, and I was very grateful. However, like all 
new brides, I found that this man that I thought was such a prize package did turn out to be a surprise package. There are a whole lot of things that you don't know about a man until you're actually married. But he was God's gift to me, and so we began to learn the lessons of love and sacrifice and self-giving. Each for the other should be the motto of every married couple. Not for me and myself and I, but each for the other. Love gives. Love lays down its life. That's called a surprise package, Newlyweds. Originally from February of 1989, our next program as well. He is no fool, a quote by Jim Elliott is what we'll be hearing about next. But that'll be after a quick comment from Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott's daughter, Valerie. I think of, again, that quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What's most important? It's living for him and his glory. Valerie Elliott Shepherd. Hey, who were the first of the missionaries to arrive in Ecuador? What condition did Jim have for marrying Elizabeth? Imagine this as well, being your church experience, that when you go, you go to a place with a thatched roof held up by poles. People coming in at uh, any time of the service, babies, chickens, parrots, laughing, spitting, commenting, objections, questions, lots of uh, informal things happening. We've been telling the story of the life of Jim Elliott, my first husband, and how when we were first married, we lived in a little place called Puyupungu. We were the first missionaries that had ever been there. And a man named Atanasio, who was a sort of a chief, there really isn't such a thing as chiefs in Ecuador's Indian tribes, but Atanasio was a fairly influential man, and he had two wives and about 15 children, so he had invited us to come in there and start a little school. You may remember that when Jim Elliott proposed to me, he appended a very stringent condition to that proposal. He said, I will not marry you until you learn Quechua. Well, Quechua was no relation at all to the two languages that I had studied up to that point. I had had to learn Spanish, of course, since it's the national language of Ecuador. And then I had been working in the western jungle of Ecuador with a small tribe of Indians called Colorados and had been working on the reduction to writing of that language. But Quechua was as different from those two languages as English would be from Chinese. But Jim Elliott was a man worth getting, I felt, and so I certainly accepted with alacrity his proposal as well as the condition. I had not mastered Quechua. He was fairly lenient with his requirements when it came right down to it, so that by the time we were married, I had been able to learn enough to make myself understood and to understand pretty much what was said to me, but I had a long way to go. So when we moved back to Shandia and Jim began working on the buildings there, I was still studying Quechua, trying to reduce it to what is called a phonemic alphabet, that is, an alphabet in which each symbol stands for one sound, and that sound would be a significant one in the language. Some of us that are not linguistically oriented might not realize that there are sounds in languages which are not really essential 
but the ones which are necessary to the writing of the language constitute the phonemic alphabet. So that's what I was doing. At the same time, trying to translate some of the simpler passages of Scripture, such as the book of John. The Gospel of John is probably the easiest book in the Bible to translate because the vocabulary is very simple and yet probably the most one of the most profound books to interpret and to understand. Jim was by this time fluent in Quechua and able to preach, and so he was preaching the gospel, and it was not very long before some Indians began to want to be believers, and a small church was established. When I say church, don't imagine a building other than a thatched roof held up by a few poles with some very crude benches that had no backs on them. When I speak of a church service, what I mean is people coming in any old time, lots of babies, dogs, parrots, sometimes chickens, people talking, laughing, spitting, getting up to go to the window to look out to see who was going by, people commenting as the sermon progressed. When they got bored, the women would turn to each other and start picking the lice out of each other's hair or picking the lice out of their children's hair or picking the fleas off the dogs. There would be running commentary and sometimes questions or objections to the things which were being said. So informal would be the word that springs to your lips. But it was wonderful to think that here were people who were hearing the gospel of Christ for the first time, people who knew nothing about the Bible. They had all heard the name of Christ because there were Catholic missionaries not very far away, and most of these Indians were uh, nominal Catholics. They wore medals around their necks on chains. Most of them had been baptized by the priest who came through, and yet they seemed to have very little understanding of what that was all about. And so Jim and I worked together very happily there with the Quechuas on that station called Shandia, going back every now and then to visit in Puyupungu and keeping up the work that we had begun there. And by this time, Pete Fleming and his new bride, Olive, had moved to Puyupungu and were carrying on the work that we had begun. I remember the thrill of a day in September of 1955 when Nate Saint, the pilot who served our little station with his small airplane, came in to tell us that he had discovered some inhabited Alka houses. The Alkas were another tribe of Indians not related to either the Colorados or the Quichuas. We knew that they were Stone Age people. We knew that they wore no clothes and that they killed strangers. We knew next to nothing else about them because no one had ever gone into their territory and come back to tell the tale. So as Nate told us this exciting piece of news that from the air he had actually discovered some inhabited Alka houses, then we sat down and discussed what he called Operation Alka. It was Nate's idea to begin a program of dropping gifts to these people from the airplane with the hope that this would reduce the hostility that they seemed to feel for outsiders and thus prepare the way for a meeting face-to-face -face on the ground in God's time. On December 28, 1955, Jim wrote this letter to his parents. By the time this reaches you, Ed and Pete and I and another fellow will have attempted with Nate a contact 
with the Alcas. We have prayed for this and prepared for several months, keeping the whole thing secret. Not even our nearby missionary friends know of it yet. Some time ago on survey flights, Nate located two groups of their houses, and ever since that time we have made weekly friendship flights, dropping gifts and shouting phrases from a loudspeaker in their language, which we got from the woman in Elah. That woman's name was Dayuma. Nate has used his drop cord system to land things right at their doorstep, and we have received several gifts back from them, pets and food and things they make, tied onto this cord. Our plan is to go down river and land on a beach we have surveyed not far from their place, build a treehouse, which I have prefabricated with our power saw here, then invite them over by calling to them from the plane. The contact is planned for Friday or Saturday, January 6 or 7. We may have to wait longer. I don't have to remind you that these are completely naked savages. I saw the first sign of clothes last week, a G-string. They have never had any contact with white men other than killing. They do not have firearms, but kill with long chonta wood lances. They do not have fire, except what they make from rubbing sticks together on moss. They use bark cloth for carrying their babies, sleep in hammocks, steal machetes and axes when they kill our Indians. They have no word for God in their language, only for devils and spirits. I know you will pray. Our orders are the gospel to every creature. Your loving son and brother, Jim. And so it was on the 1st of January of 1956 that the men decided that God's time had come to attempt to reach these people face to face on the ground. Nate flew them in to a little sand strip on the Kurarai River, which he had discovered from the air and by an ingenious method of his own, had managed to measure by dropping little packages of dye at timed intervals as he flew low over the beach. Jim's prefabricated house was transported in board by board on the, in the little airplane, and the five men set up their camp. These five were now Nate Saint from Philadelphia, Ed McCulley from Wisconsin, Rod Udarian from Montana, Pete Fleming from Seattle, Washington, and Jim Elliott from Portland, Oregon. They were very excited when they set up their camp, and they were able to make radio contact with the base in Shelmera, where Nate's wife, Marge, was operating the radio. I had the opportunity from my own station to hear the regular contacts, but this was all top secret, and so there were contacts that I didn't know anything about, and we had to speak in code because there were other missionaries on the network. So this made it very difficult to know what really was happening. On January the 5th, the five men were electrified when suddenly in the middle of the afternoon they heard a male voice shouting from the jungle. They looked up. There were three Alcas coming across the river. This story is told in detail in the book called Through Gates of Splendor. But suffice it to say that two days later, on January the 8th, all five of the men were speared to death by these Indians to whom they had gone. When a ground party reached their campsite about five days later, they discovered the bodies of the men in the river, the guns and the cameras also in the river, the prefabricated house destroyed, but stuck up into the thatched roof of a little shack that the men had built on the beach, 
they found a penciled note that Jim had written to me, which had not, of course, been delivered. It was dated January 4, 1956. Bet's darling, he wrote, just worked up a sweat on the hand crank of the radio. Nobody is reading us, but we read all the morning contact clearly. We had a good night with a coffee and sandwich break at 2 a.m. Didn't set a watch last night, as we feel really cozy and secure, 35 feet off the ground in our three little bunks. The beach is good for landing, but too soft for takeoffs. We have three alternatives. Wait till the sun hardens it up and sit until a stiff breeze makes it possible to take off. Go make a strip in the Alka village or walk out. We saw puma tracks on the beach and heard them last night. It's beautiful jungle, open and full of palms. Our hopes are up, but no signs of the neighbors yet. Perhaps today is the day the Alkas will be reached. It was a fight getting this hut up, but it sure is worth the effort. We're going down now, pistols, gifts, novelties in our pockets, prayer in our hearts. All for now, your lover, Jim. And so the last chapter of his life was ended, as Jim, I'm sure, would want it to have been ended if God had given him a choice. Jim had written in his diary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. From 1989, that was He Is No Fool, quote by Jim Elliott. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to hear from Elizabeth's uh, nephew, Peter DeVries, an accomplished violinist. In awe of this amazing woman. And then my parents dumped me off at college, went 13,000 miles away back to school. I went to Indiana. My parents went 13,000 miles away. I didn't see them again for three years. I had to do something in the summer and I needed people to lean on. And my Howard family, my Uncle Tom, um, my Uncle Jim, and Aunt Betty were three of the most pivotal, and I spent hours and days and weeks in her home. And I think in some ways, I think she would agree with me, in some ways I was sort of the son she didn't have. And Val and I had lots of fun, playing, and I remember almost sinking a boat in the river up in Franconia, but Aunt Betty watched me grow up. Um, but one of the things that strikes me that I'm still learning today is somehow this woman knew how to wait upon the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as, as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. She knew that. For me, this came down to wanting to find a wife. And she kept telling me, Peter, there's an amazing woman out there for you. And I pray that the Lord keeps her from you and for you. And I kind of liked the for you part. I wasn't so big about the from you part, especially as I got into my late 20s, then into my early 30s, and then pretty soon, I swear, my mother is saying to me, just pick one. <laughs> and then I morphed sort of, I was trying to wrap my head around the whole idea that Maybe I'm not going to get married. Maybe I was not made. You know, it's all right, Paul, you know, he was a good guy. I can do this. What I didn't know is that in my early 20s, 
Well, when I started college, my wife started third grade. And I met, I saw my wife pretty much for the first time. Couldn't believe that I was head over heels in love and all I could think about was closing that deal. And I'll tell you, it came back to me then and it has come back to me through the years. It's they that wait upon the Lord that renew their strength. And, and if Aunt Betty hadn't been there and just kind of keeping me calm and helping me focus in so many ways, I don't know, I probably would have blown it. She was the source of such joy and such laughter and such piercing, sometimes a little harsh wisdom, but I knew that she loved me. Accomplished musician and the nephew of Elizabeth Elliot, Peter DeVries. Well, it looks as though we've come to the end again of our program. Thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe out exercising, wherever you happen to be. Thanks for letting us uh, find you there today. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. That's elizabethelliot.org. A lot there for you. Well, until next time, with the music of John Hansen underneath, uh, may I remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms 